Canto 12 of Inferno was full of cracks. Canto 13, sheer, unadulterated brilliance. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we usually, not now, but usually walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. This episode, there's going to be no Dante, but I'll explain that in a second. Let me just say something about Canto 13. We're in the seventh circle of hell. We have passed the first ring, the violent against others, and are coming into the second ring of the seventh circle of hell. This Canto is brilliant for many reasons. For one thing, the poet's dislocation is more firmly located in the text. (laughs) That makes any sense. The poet's dislocation is located. Okay, just give it to me. The poet's dislocation, the poet's existential dilemma that we discussed in the 12th canto is now more fully mm, grounded right into the text itself, and it is mirrored by the pilgrim's dislocation. We'll talk way more about that when we get into the canto. The thematics of Canto 13 look back and forward in comedy. I can't do much with how it looks forward. It does look forward to actually some passages that are coming up or those passages call back to it, but it seems like it's setting up certain things that are going to happen on down the line. But I can tell you right now that we'll look at the places it looks back to where we've already been. It calls back to comedy itself. And Canto 13 is a tour de force of rhetoric, not only from the sinners who we will meet, but from the poet Dante and a further exploration of the seventh circle of hell as the labyrinth, the circle that started with the Minotaur on the scree-filled slope. So let's get to it. If you know what I'm about to do, sit back and enjoy the ride. If you don't, you're about to hear some stories. What's going to happen in this episode is I'm going to read you a passage from Ovid's Metamorphoses and two passages from Virgil's Aeneid. These passages are incredibly important to the 13th canto of Inferno. And once you know these passages, the canto itself will deepen quite a bit. I had originally thought that I would just call attention to these passages as we passed references to them in the canto. But listen, we're taking our time. So let's just sit with Ovid and with Virgil for a minute. Look at the passages that they write because they're going to resonate so fully inside Canto 13. Sit back, get ready for some stories. Nothing from Dante this time, just passages from Ovid and Virgil. Our first passage is from Ovid's Metamorphoses. We're in book nine. If you know anything about the Metamorphoses, you don't have to know anything, but if you know anything about Ovid's book, this giant 15-chapter thing that Ovid wrote, if you know anything about it, you know that it's all about transformations, about characters who undergo various physical, almost solely physical, not, but almost solely physical transformations in the natural world. We have all kinds of people turning into various things because of something that they've done. I'm in book nine, and I'm in the Latin, if you're following me in the Latin, good for you. I'm about line 331. I'm using the Mandelbaum translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses. If you want to look at that, I'm actually on page 302. And I want to read you the story of Dryope because what happens to her will become incredibly important to Canto 13 of Dante's comedy. Dryope's half-sister Alcmena is telling 
the story of what happened to her. They share one parent. And she's going to tell this story about what happened to her half-sister. One day, Triope was visiting a lake whose sloping shoreline formed a sort of inclined beach, which at its top was crowned with myrtle shrubs. She came not knowing what would be her fate, and what is even more disturbing, she had come to gather garlands as offerings to the nymphs. My sister bore a welcome weight, her infant son, not yet one full year old, and at her breast she nursed the boy with her warm milk. Not too far off, there grew a water-loving lotus plant with buds whose hue resembled Tyrian purple. Its branches promised to show berries soon, and from this lotus, Dryope had plucked some blossoms to delight her infant son. I thought I'd do the same. Yes, I was there, but stopped when I saw drops of blood that dripped down from the blossoms as the branches shuddered. The truth slow-witted rustics would explain, and later, much too late to help, was this. Once, Lude Priapus was in hot pursuit of Lotus, and in order to escape, the nymph had changed into this plant. Her name, though not her form and features, had remained. My sister did not know of this. Afraid, she tried to hurry from that place. She prayed unto the nymphs, and now her feet were stayed like roots within the ground. She tried to shake Earth's grip, but it was just her upper limbs that moved. The bark climbed slowly from below and gradually covered all her loins. When Dryope saw that, she tried to tear her hair, but leaves were all she clutched. Her head had flowered now with boughs. So, here's the story, Dryope plucks the lotus. It turns out to be actually the nymph lotus who had been trying to escape a potential rape. Well, Dryope's caught and turned into this tree. And wow, that great passage, right? Lifts up her hands to clutch her hair in distress and all she finds are leaves up there. It goes on, I should tell you, and it comes out into a strange open story. Dryope is there, her husband comes, her sad father comes, they all come to see her turned into this tree. They take the baby from her because she's been holding the baby, but they take the baby from her and she has one last thing to say before she finally passes into vegetative life. She says, if even sorry wretches have the right to be believed, I swear upon the gods that I did not deserve this horrid end. I just want you to remember that when we enter Canto 13. Dryope is turned into a tree and she says it is completely unjust. I didn't deserve any of this. So what can we make of this story from Ovid? It is, of course, about a transformation, about a metamorphosis. And Dante is going to start to play more and more with Ovid and transformations. Let me just say that this is dangerous ground. And let me explain why it's dangerous ground. Because if the self can be transformed from me to a tree or from me to a lotus, if the self can be transformed, then it is not stable. And if you're not careful, how do you judge it then? After all, we're talking about a Christian work in which the judgment, the ethical evaluation of one's deeds is what matters. But if myself is not stable, 
How can you judge me? What part are you judging? Are you judging me before the transformation or after the transformation? And furthermore, once you hit transformations like this, Dryopia is not in her created state. What if her remains? There's her voice. It remains in the tree. So that's still part of her. But what else remains? And ultimately, she goes silent. The question arises, who is she? And how does one actually make sense of the self in a world capable of such dramatic transformations? A second problem with this passage. Dryope has committed an inadvertent evil. She didn't walk her in this into this scene in order to pluck this flower, which is going to bleed because it's part of the nymph's self, so, which has been transformed to escape a rape, a rape. I mean, she didn't do this on purpose. And she even says, I'm, I'm not guilty. I don't deserve what's happened to me. And that's her, those are her final words. That's the way she goes out is with this plea that it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. It's an inadvertent evil. Once again, we're stepping into extraordinarily dangerous ground for a Christian to write about. Inadvertent evil, so not a sin of omission and not a sin of commission, but just something I slipped into. And it's harder to judge. It's harder to figure out where the ethics lie in an inadvertent evil. Let's say, you know, I'm running down, I'm driving down the road and I run over, I don't know, a squirrel. I don't want to make it too dramatic. I run over a squirrel and there's nothing I could do. I'm in traffic. Cars are everywhere. This thing darts out into the road. I run over it. Is it bad? It feels bad. It feels like it shouldn't have happened. But is it morally reprehensible? And what if it is? What if the inadvertence doesn't affect the actual commission of what's happened? In other words, my inability to swerve in traffic and, you know, keep stable and my speed and I wasn't even speeding. I wasn't doing anything wrong. And this squirrel jumped out. But then it's still a death. I mean, listen, I could make this much worse with than a child jumped out or then a bicyclist jumped out. And then, of course, it gets much worse. And what happens when the evil is inadvertent? Just like Dryope, out with her kid and they're pricking flowers and it's nice. How was I supposed to know this was a nymph sitting there and that this lotus would bleed human blood? All bringing up unbelievably complicated ethical problems that are going to bear on Canto 13 of Inferno and forward. So let's move on off Ovid and let's move to Virgil. We're at the start of book three of the Aeneid in the Robert Fagel's translation. I'm at page 103 of Fagel's translation. If you want to, if you've got it, you want to look along, that's where it is. Otherwise, you can just hear me read the opening bit. Let me just set this up for you. Troy has collapsed. Aeneas has started his great journey out from Troy to find his place in Rome and to found Rome. But as of this moment, he's still back in Troy, in Asia Minor, in what would be modern day Turkey. And he's trying to get out with his father, with his warrior cohort with his family. They're on the run. And this is how it goes. This is Aeneas speaking. Now that it pleases the gods to crush the power of Asia and Priam's innocent people, now proud Troy had fallen. Neptune's city, a total ruin, smoking on the ground. Signs from the high gods 
drive us on. Exiles now, searching earth for a home in some neglected land. We labor to build a fleet under the heights of Phrygian Ida, knowing nothing. Where would destiny take us? Where are we to settle? We muster men for crews. Summer has just begun when Father commands us, hoist our sails to fate. And I launch out in tears and desert our native land. Just think what just happened here. Aeneas is saying, goodbye, Troy. I, I, I'm leaving forever, and I'm never seeing you again. So I take to the open ocean and exile outward bound with sun and comrades, gods of hearth and home, and the great gods themselves. Just in the offing lies the land of Mars, the boundless farmlands tilled by the Thracian field hands, ruled in the old days by merciless Lycurgus. His realm was a friend of Troy for years, our household gods in league, so long as our fortunes lasted. Well, here I sail and begin to build our first walls on the curving shore. The fate will block our way. And I give the town the name of Enos, modeled on my own. So Aeneas is starting to build a city, but it's not Rome. So it's not where he's supposed to ultimately end up, but okay. Now making offerings to my mother, he means Aphrodite, and to the gods who bless new ventures, I was poised there on the beach to slaughter a pure white bull to Jove above all who rules the powers on high. Nearby, I chanced on the rise of ground topped off by thickets, bristling dogwood and myrtle spears. I tried to tear some green shoots from the brush to make a canopy for the altar with leafy boughs when a dreadful, ghastly sight, too strange for words, strikes my eyes. Soon as I tear the first stalk from its roots and rip it up from the earth, dark blood oozes out and fouls the soil with filth. Icy shudders rack my limbs, my blood chills with fear, and again I try, I tear at another stubborn stalk. I'll probe this mystery to its hidden roots, and again the dark blood runs from the torn bark. Deeply shaken, I pray to the country nymphs and Father Mars, who strides the fields of Thrace, Make this sight a blessing, lift the omen's weight. And now as I pitch at a third stalk, doubling my effort, knees bracing against the sand, struggling to pry it loose, shall I tell you or hold my tongue? I hear it, clearly a wrenching groan rising up from the deep mound, a cry heaving into the air. Why, Aeneas, why mangle this wretched flesh? Spare the body buried here. Spare your own pure hands. Don't stain them. I am no stranger to you. I was born in Troy, and the blood you see is oozing from no tree. Oh, escape from this savage land, I beg you. Flee these gasping shores. I am Polydorus. Here they impaled me. An iron planting of lances covered my body. Now they sprout in stabbing spears. Wow, dramatic passage. So Aeneas has landed at a place in Thrace. He's decided he's going to set this up as his new home. It doesn't turn out right. He builds an altar. He wants to get some brush for the altar itself. He starts to pull up this myrtle bush on this weird-looking mound. The ground starts to bleed 
and a voice comes out of it, and it is Polydorus. It is Priam's son from Troy who has run to Thrace with a bag of money to support himself in Thrace, and in case uh, anything happens to Troy, which of course it does, they've killed him for that money, they've buried him there, and all of these spears they stuck in the ground have grown into plants, And now he somehow is talking out of the ground as his own blood bubbles up. A strange, odd scene. A scene that is all about trying to build a home in the wrong place. A scene in which Aeneas starts his vast journey from Troy, ends up at a place he's not supposed to be, but settles for a moment there until warned off... (laughs) You just have to keep all this in mind for Canto 13 and the next episode of Walking with Dante. Notice that this episode sends Aeneas out into his fate-directed wandering, which ultimately leads him to Rome. Well, leads him to Dido and lots of things, but ultimately leads him to the founding of Rome. And notice what has happened to Polydorus. He has been done in by court intrigue. He has taken his money from his father, from Troy, run for this distant kingdom to try to save something from Troy. They've killed him for his money and buried him here. Notice all of that going on in this strange passage in the Aeneid. You just have to hold this in your brain for the next episode of Walking with Dante. But I'm not quite done with book three of the Aeneid. I want to read you one short other passage. Later in this same book, book three of the Aeneid, Aeneas has left where (laughs) Polydorus has been crying out from the ground. They've had several near-death escapes already. They come to an island and something happens here. So let's just look at it. They come up to the island, and here goes the passage in book three. I'm about in the Latin, ooh, I'm about line 210, right along in there. In Fagel's translation, I'm on page 110. So I was saved from the deep, the shores of the Strophides first to take me in. Strophides, Greek name for the turning islands, lie in the great Ionian Sea. Here, Grim, Selino, and Sister Harpies settled after Phineas' doors were locked against them, and they fled in fear from the tables where they gorged. The Harpies, no monsters on earth more cruel, no scourge more savage, no wrath of the gods has ever raised its head from the Styx's waters. The faces of girls, but birds, a loathsome ooze discharges from their bellies, talons for hands, their jaws deathly white with a hunger never sated. Oh, these these filthy, awful harpies, these birds with girls' faces and talons for hands. The Aeneas's soldiers actually um, do the bad thing here. They actually eat some of the cattle on the island. The harpies are enraged at this. Well, these are men who've been at sea and they're very hungry, are enraged with this. They drive them off, but not before the head harpy, Salino, offers a prophecy. So, war as well now? Gearing for battle, are you? As if to atone for the butchery of our cattle? 
You'd force the innocent harpies from their father's kingdom? Take what I say to heart and stamp it in your minds. This prophecy the Almighty Father made to Phoebus, and Phoebus made to me the greatest of the furies, and I reveal it to you. Italy is the land you seek. You call on the winds to sweep you there by sea to Italy. You will go, permitted to enter port, but never granted a city girded round by ramparts, not before some terrible hunger and your attack on us outrageous slaughter drive you to gnaw your own wooden plates with your teeth. That's her ghastly prophecy. That they're going to have to, sure, go to Italy. They'll get there. But they're going to be so starved, they're going to end up eating <laughs> eating their dinnerware and their flatware because there's nothing else to eat. This is important because having violated the harpies' land, having eaten some of their cattle as starving sailors, they're now cursed by these harpies. And this curse falls on them and on Italy. Those were our three passages. We had the Ovid Metamorphosis of Dryope. We had the Vir Virgil passage in the Aeneid of Aeneas's first stop on his wandering in which he tries to erect an altar and Polydorus is somehow buried under it and has become part of the ground and the blood comes up and all this stuff. And don't forget the blood back there in the metamorphosis either with that lotus flower and then these terrible harpies who offer a dire prediction about Italy. Keep all this in your head. On the next episode of Walking with Dante, we're going to start into Canto 13. And if you know all this, wow, you are so ahead of the game. You're going to see just why I can never let Canto 13 go. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, subscribe. Go right to the bottom, subscribe, and write a review. A review would be great. If you could drop on the Apple menu to the bottom and write a review, that would be fabulous. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you like. I love having conversations in Instagram messages on Twitter. If you hashtag at Walking with Dante, I'll see you or just follow me. I'll follow you right back. There's also a Facebook group, Walking with Dante. So many ways that we can connect and we can continue the conversation about comedy because I can't be done talking about it and I hope you can't either. Come back next time. And we're going to start Canto 13. You're going to start it armed with all the knowledge you need to see what a master of the arts Dante is. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante.